Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Congo Basin holds the world's second-largest tropical forest. It remains largely untouched and in its natural state. And now the crisis of climate and carbon is forcing everyone to rethink what may happen. You, America, the most richest country on Earth, the most powerful country on Earth, you used to have a lot of forests in your own cities and country. Where is your forest? You destroy it. Why don't you want us to destroy our own forest to do the same thing you did? Billions of dollars are at stake and possibly the future of the planet. There is a thing called risk and return. And that risk in return is both financial and, and environmental. If we wait until all the rules are in place, at least this forest, it'll be too late. Saving the African forest in this special report from Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Scientists and diplomats with their climate change conferences seldom get to a part of the world that is central to any discussion about carbon, Africa, and especially the Congo Basin. That is where Living on Earth sent reporter Alex Chadwick, and you may know him as the former chief correspondent for the National Geographic Radio Expedition Series on NPR. Alex, welcome to the show, and what did you find? Thanks, Steve. You know, the assignment here is to try to figure out how this big climate policy called RED... Reduced emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. That is the one. So how might that work in Africa and really in the Congo Basin, which holds an enormous amount of the world's remaining tropical forests? Big and carbon rich. So where do you begin? Well, the carbon story, it's everywhere. So I got my first interview for this, actually not far from where I live in Los Angeles. But let us start here with something someone told me once I actually did get to the Congo Basin. I heard this story from His Majesty Chief Impono Pierre in the village of Nguela, just south of the Ja River in eastern Cameroon. Quand les Allemands avaient perdu la guerre parce qu'ils étaient basés, certains étaient basés au Congo. About a hundred years ago, when Germany claimed a lot of this territory, a patrol fleeing a battle in Congo followed a trail north. One soldier was badly wounded. The patrol took shelter with some local people. The man died. The patrol buried him and moved on. It left behind a diary, a German flag, and a plea to the family that had helped. Remain here. Please, wait. In some way, the story of Red in the Congo Basin is the story of what happened to that family, the German flag and the diary. That's the story that we're going to tell, and we're going to begin in the forest of Anguilla. It's like nature's Disneyland. We recorded this near what had been a small cluster of Baca people, pygmies. They've abandoned this site or been chased away, where in a forest space they had cleared for a shrine. We're staying quiet, recording. It's dawn. Whoa, what was that? 
That's my friend and producer, Christopher Johnson, and more from him later. That was so cool. There are many ideas about what to do with all this forest. If I were the head of state in this country, I would have advocated strongly to continue to destroy the forest. A government official in Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé, we'd spoken to him about this forest several days earlier. Who are destroying the forest in Cameroon? Uh, uh, Europeans. Americans. The, the timber companies. Yeah, the timber companies. You, American, the most richest country on earth, the most powerful country on earth, you used to have a lot of forests in your own uh, cities and country. Where is your forest? You destroy it. Now you come in, in Cameroon and you say, oh, guy, stop destroying the forest. Then why? Why don't you want us to destroy our own forest to do the same thing you did? Issa Kroma Bakari, Minister of Communication and Skilled at It. The cut it down rant, a caricature, he says. But what lies behind it, poverty, need, isolation, crippled lives, those are real, and especially in forest communities. Congo forest feels eternal, but is not. It's been this way for about 10,000 years, slowly re-establishing itself after the passing of the last ice age. Indonesian forests are much older. Congo forest grows in a vast, wet basin that spreads across the central African plateau, 700,000 square miles. It's the second largest forest in the world. The Amazon is bigger. But Congo is far less altered, far more natural. It is wet, rainforest, though rains vary. One area can get 40 feet in a year, others are almost too dry. But nowhere else has this wildlife. Congo Basin still shelters poster species and many of them, with the critter charisma to flutter conservation hearts around the world, which they do. The Nguyla Mintum Forest is in Central Africa, but just barely. It's on the northwest rim of the Congo Basin. Christopher and I first learned about this forest from a California engineer and business consultant who retired early to follow a passion. And his name is... Mike Korczynski. How often do you get an opportunity to participate in saving 2 million acres of primary rainforest? If you're an animal lover like I am, uh, the prospect of, of protecting habitat for thousands of lowland gorillas and chimpanzees and elephants was too much to pass up. This is early summer at an outdoor cafe in Venice, the L.A. beach town. Mike is looking for money, $10 million, to try to buy his way into the carbon rights of the Ingoila Mintum Forest. He doesn't have much time. He's just been in Cameroon at the Ministry of Forests, and he saw the timber bids for this forest. Unfortunately, they were in the middle of a process, so they, they, they told us that they couldn't delay that process indefinitely, and they gave us a month to find the money to make a counterproposal based on the, the potential for red Red, the climate change forest carbon idea. Living on Earth listeners have heard this. Here's a reminder in a simple form. And let's go back to that forest for a moment. It's full of life and carbon. 
Cutting trees releases global warming greenhouse gases. Big deforestation is a big contributor of carbon dioxide, or CO2. So, pay places with lots of forests to keep them intact. These carbon forest keepers can then sell their carbon savings as atmospheric offsets to countries and companies with too many emissions. In theory, the atmosphere gets less CO2. And for giving up or deferring their forest-related development opportunities, countries with a lot of forest get money, possibly billions and many billions. Alex, conservationists are gaga for red. It reduces CO2, it saves threatened habitat and wildlife, and it relieves some of the dire poverty that helps drive deforestation. One policy, many benefits. Okay, we're back with Mike Korczynski, conservationist and would-be red investor. I was in Cameroon for about a month, and I spent three weeks in the forest, uh, first to understand what the carbon value of the forest potentially was, and then to get a sense of the biodiversity and whether or not uh, this place was really a special place to be preserved. And then I went and spent a week in the, in the capital with the government trying to understand uh, their position and convince them that, that they should make a stay of execution, if you like, on the forest and give me an opportunity to rally some financing around a, a red project. Of course, it's an, it's an intimidating prospect. I've never raised $10 million in a month before, so uh, I didn't know enough to know whether I could or couldn't do it. Mike, remember, retired at age 38. He knows money, people. But this deadline, 30 days, it could take that long just to explain red. He needs a special set of money people, the kind with sharpened teeth. And that's true. And those people live over in Europe, where carbon trading is already active. French bankers asked to see him. He flies to London, stays overnight, holds one day of meetings, and sells out his entire $10 million offering. He doesn't have to explain the money end of red. They already know. Of course, foresters are very good at walking into forests and determining the value of a forest from a timber standpoint. And carbon isn't that different. About 45% of the weight of a tree is carbon. So if you can estimate the weight of the forest, you can estimate the number of tons of CO2 that you'd be able to sell. And then you look at the global price, which has ranged dramatically, uh, has never really gone below $3 a ton of CO2 emission reduction. So on that basis, you can figure out what you think the forest would generate on an annual basis from red. And that dollar figure is? Well, I think my estimates are that we'll be able to generate at least $10 million a year, um, and potentially quite a bit more. Yeah, a lot more. For many people, red is less about climate than about money. We'll note here that funding is one reason it could take a month to explain red. Some groups and governments want it run and regulated by international public agencies like the UN and paid for by the rich countries with taxes. Others argue that approach is too slow, too cumbersome, and too expensive. Private markets can achieve climate goals much better. But for everyone chasing the idea of red, I have one more question for Mike Korczynski. So much of red is unsettled. You don't know what's going to happen. No, but any venture investor that tells you he knows what's going to happen and any investment he makes is probably certifiably mad, I think. You know, there is a thing called risk and return. And that risk and return is both financial and and environmental. If we wait until all the rules are in place, at least this forest, it'll be too late. So that is what set us off for Cameroon, a country about the size of California in central West Africa. 
The capital, Yaoundé, is wild over today's soccer match. It's Cameroon against Togo. If you picture Africa like a fist bent inward, Cameroon would be right where the wrist meets the hand. Cameroon facts. It's got almost 20 million people split between city and country. Many of them are farmers. It's poor, unemployment, 30%. Poverty, almost 50%. Life expectancy, 54 years old. But people here never had a civil war. They don't seem to hate each other or their neighbors. They muddle along, thinking things might get better. They are a recognizable version of us. We spend days filing for permits. The Minister of Communication, Mr. Go-Ahead-and-Cut-The-Forest, he never does grant us one. We're determined to see the forest Mike Korchinski described and to see how people there live, permit or no. And so, armed with an air of innocence, we rent a car to take us 250 miles east, out of Yaoundé and into the wildlands. I know driving around Central Africa can be dicey. I've been stopped at gunpoint several times. But now, we pass almost unnoticed. The road devolves in stages of decay, but it brings us safely at last to the Ja River. On the other side is the Ngoila Mintum Forest, home to Mike Korchinski's beloved wildlife and maybe a fortune in carbon. We'll be back to Alex Chadwick in Africa in just a moment. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And we're back in Cameroon and the Congo Basin, where reporter Alex Chadwick is trying to get to a small village beside a great forest, a place that may be a factor in the climate change equation. The ferry barge that links the village of Anguilla to the outside world is on the opposite bank and in no hurry to come get us. Time passes. River flies cluster on ankles and feet. Other waiting travelers begin dabbing gasoline on bare skin. It's better than getting bitten. At last, the ferry barge pushes off from the other shore and begins its slow passage. No one bothers us for a permit. Maybe you can start to hear the, the water flowing past the stern of the ferry. It's, it's on its way across the river. It's a square floating platform, maybe 30 feet by 30 feet. It's attached to a cable that runs from shore to shore, uh, probably 20 feet up in the air. It's got two cables from the ferry run to the, to the long stretcher cable. And that's what keeps the, keeps the ferry in operation. The river here is about 100 yards across, and it flows very quickly. A ferry boat driven by current is not simply a means to cross open water. It conveys you into the past at the pace of life in a village. An outsider adjusts to this bucolic relic. Now this road we're on passes clusters of mud brick homes, fields of papaya, plantains, and cassava. There aren't many people until Ngoila. The village at the edge of the forest... This is rural, but it's more active than any place we've seen for hours. Some people have generators for power, so there's this composition of mud brick, corrugated roof, and satellite dish. And young men 
pass by buzzing on motorbikes. I am the district officer. My name is Obati Hancon Joseph. Now, Angola has a mayor, but this guy, the district officer, he's the real big shot. The government owns the forest in Cameroon, and he, he's the government's man. Those who are living here, everything they eat, everything they do, medical care, of course, is coming from the forest. The forest is then very, very important for the people who are living here. It is also the forest that gives land for the people to have their farm, for people to farm. Everything here is coming from the forest. Christopher's been over talking to the mayor. What did he say? His name is Bamtal Alphonse. He's one of the town's few elected officials. He told me a little bit about Angola. He said there are about 6,000 people here, two major ethnic groups, the Jim and the Baca. And if you walk around town, you see a lot of people carrying machetes, men and boys. And the mayor told me that they use those machetes to hack out their living. They grow plantains, cocoa, and bananas. Anguilla's number one problem? Poverty. This town is desperate for electricity, for running water, for cell phones, and for more teachers. And Mayor Alphonse says, if carbon is the answer to Anguilla's problems, let's make a deal, and fast. You know, as we've come along uh, down the road from the main capital... 6,000 people is actually a a pretty substantial community for at least this region of Cameroon. We see there are other uh, dirt roads leading off from here. There's a little church over there. Uh, Lots of chickens. Lots lots of chickens, chickens. yeah, yard chickens. And we're going to go see the women's group? Yeah, let's go. They're right down the road here. Au profit de sa brousse, de sa forêt. Au profit de sa forêt... Nous voulons l'électrification de la ville. Madame Mawol Jaquette invites us into her home, the front room, a large space, comfortable with almost 20 ladies from the Anguilla Women's Association, each in an elegant print dress, many with a matching head wrap. I wish I had a clean shirt. La création des emplois. You don't need French to get it that Madame Jaquette is unhappy with the state of events here. Anguilla needs phones, electricity, schools. And she told us she has 10 children. Eight of her kids have been away to school and they've come back home. None of them can find a job in Anguilla. We spend four days in Anguilla. The nearby forest is what Mike Korczynski promised. The Anguilla Mintum Conservation Area is about 3,000 square miles, so vast it's like looking at the ocean. The trees are densely packed and enormous carbon columns. We interview farmers and foresters and confirm what the officials tell us. This place is poor. And if the villagers can't exploit the forest, it's going to stay that way. It's just too remote. There's nothing else to develop. A farmer's market opens at dawn on a Saturday in an area by the Drooping Town Pavilion. Four vendors offer a few wretched samples of local goods. A small boy has several yams on the bare earth. In half an hour, the dozen browsers who had come by are gone. And the vendors are quitting, too. (laughs) 
on the ferry, returning to the Capitol for an important interview. I'm mashing UN climate policy and carbon wealth and life in a forest village. Here are some of the parts. In Cameroon, trees are plentiful and money is scarce. Timber is the number two export. It was a real sacrifice to set aside Angola Mintum for conservation. Cameroon expected some green eco-development money for communities like a timber company would offer. But the conservation money never came. Finally, officials moved to open this conservation forest to loggers. But red was just then emerging as the favored policy option of climate negotiators and the global recession was devaluing timber prices. And so, in the months that followed, our California investor, Mike Korczynski, came to Yaoundé with his red bid. South African investors made another red offer. And the World Bank and the World Wildlife Fund are working together on a red proposal. And suddenly, Cameroon is rethinking what to do again. My name is Elvis Ngole Ngole. I am the Minister of Forestry and Wildlife meaning I'm in charge of all the trees and the, and the wildlife. Elvis Ngole Ngole, married to an American, studied in the U.S. for 11 years, used to listen to public radio. And maybe that's why he personally waived the $2,000 fee that someone wanted to charge us for recording in the forest. Elvis is the person who decides what happens with the forests of Cameroon and Red. If the people see that their conditions of living are improving in terms of education, uh, health, in terms of infrastructure development, uh, in terms of opportunities for employment. I think that they will know that the efforts are meaningful to them and are relevant to them. Are you at all concerned that this is another form of selling off a part of Africa to other people to use to solve their problems? Africa has come of age... Africa is, has come out of its, um, of its um, I don't want to say, uh, grudge against colonialism. I think that Africans have grown up to the point where they believe in looking forward and not looking backwards. I think the history of colonialism and colonial exploitation is there, but uh, it's looked upon by the present generation of African leaders as, well, that is an original sin. But we must go ahead. We must continue. And, and not to worry about those who want to exploit you and exploit you to, to extinction. The Ministry of Forest and Wildlife has done well managing timber exports, but it's nothing compared to what a red carbon market might bring. I worked through one investment prospectus. It projects a carbon value for Ingoila Mintum of more than $7 billion. Now, Alex, you know, officials never want to discuss numbers in public. But Minister Ngoli Ngoli didn't disagree with the figure you gave him, except that maybe it isn't high enough. You've used the figure of $7 billion. I've heard of figures way more than that. I think the Net Bank, the South African Net Bank, came here the other day and talked in terms of uh, hundreds, I think it was somewhere around $200 billion. I think that if it's $7 billion, then that's fine. But if it's more than $7 million, well, why not? The people will be more than happy uh, if they can be told that um, the best value for that pristine forest is more than they ever imagined. I think that would be great. 
on the entire continent of Africa, the Congo Basin Forest is the only remaining contiguous forest massive that's remaining, and that has value for the fight against climate change. And whatever uh, we can derive in terms of carbon credits is the Congo Basin Forest Massive. So there is a huge economic value in ensuring that that forest remains intact. Red, the Congo Basin Forest, money. We're leaving Cameroon for elsewhere in the Congo Basin, but I've got this flashback to the Nguela Forest and our town and our encounter with Madame Mawolchaket. She doesn't romanticize Nguela's rustic river ferry as I did. Now I realize she hates it. It's a symbol, sure, but not of an earlier, more authentic human spirit. To Nguela, the ferry means impotence and isolation. And if red and carbon policy and climate change get her a bridge, she's all for it. But if the timber companies can do it, that's okay too. The Minister of Forests and Wildlife, Mr. Angola Angoli, told us he's never been to Anguilla. He's waiting to go, he says, until he has something to tell them. Soon, he hopes. But I would guess he already knows about Madame Jaquette and what she's expecting, what he and Red are going to have to deliver. But when? <laughs> Whatever happens in Cameroon, the real big question of the Congo Basin Forest is going to be decided here. This is the Democratic Republic of Congo and the city of Kinshasa. The Congo Basin is enormous, a huge amount of forest, but almost all of it is in this country. Kinshasa calls itself the largest French-speaking city in the world, seven and a half million people. If you count Paris's whole metro area, it has more. But Paris doesn't lie a few degrees south of the equator, hot and rainy, busy, poor, dangerous to walk around. Not as dangerous as eastern Congo, site of what's called Africa's World War. The numbers vary. Four million dead, five million dead... A 20-year conflict that still runs like a low-grade fever. Neighbor armies, militias, outsiders with greed and guns come to kill, rape, and loot. Congo is too rich in resources, minerals, gold, timber, for the outsiders to leave. Congo's too poor in civil development, maybe too corrupt, to drive them out. An actual government has been slowly reasserting itself in the last few years, but maybe it's more an experiment than a process. One healthy sign? Many international aid agencies are no longer too scared to work here. Another? There is money coming in. The Chinese are here very eagerly. We went to see a man named John Flynn. He's an American. He works for the U.S. Agency for International Development, and he runs a program called... The Central African Regional Program for the Environment. They fund a lot of green conservation projects. They're trying to figure out how to conserve the forest, how to manage the forest, how to keep the wildlife. What would you say the rate of deforestation is in the Congo Basin? 
the rate of deforestation from at least 1990 to 2000 is about 1.5% uh, of the total canopy, and that's less than 0.15% per year. Isn't that a fairly low rate of deforestation? It's by far the lowest in any forested region of the world, including even the temperate forest. Really, the principal cause of deforestation is small-scale farming. This is very small-scale, small-scale villagers, and uh, people harvesting wood for fuel, for charcoal and firewood. This is key to understanding carbon and the Congo Basin. A lot of people cut a little forest for small farms, but there's hardly any commercial use, no logging. There's no big local market for timber, and it costs too much to get logs out of here to sell internationally. The forest is not being cut, which is the good news. Also, in some way, the bad news. First, the good. We're back with the American John Flynn, who works for USAID, which funds the Central African Regional Program for the Environment, CARPE. Is it an irony that the Democratic Republic of Congo has been ignored that now, suddenly, it has potentially an enormous resource? Not only an enormous resource, but it puts the Congo on the world stage in a way it hasn't really been uh, in a positive way in its entire history. And uh, these are critical days ahead of us, ahead of this region, ahead of this country, ahead of maybe the entire uh, humanity, if I could be a little dramatic, because uh, what's decided here and how things work over the next few years may well determine the future of our planet. I've made some notes over conversations I've had with you for the last couple of days. I went back and looked at them. You told me the danger of red is that it will provide disincentives. Anytime you have a massive shift of the, of the ground, it creates a lot of distortions in the system that's not ready for all of this attention yet. And one of my concerns has been that Central Africa needs time to get ready for this system, whatever it might be. Remember the not-cutting-the-forest-equals-bad-news flag from a moment ago? Here's how a history of benign forestry could be bad for Congo. Your world fundamental goal is cut ongoing carbon emissions. Your red method is pay to reduce deforestation. So, look, Brazil cuts a lot of trees. It qualifies for big payments that actually will affect emissions in the atmosphere, which is what you want. And Congo cuts very few trees. So it qualifies for what? UN climate negotiators have been debating this for a while. They more or less conclude that paying Brazil for bad behavior and ignoring Congo's good behavior makes no sense. They're working on it. Something like this, we have to be thinking very long term. John Flynn, the USAID man in Kinshasa. We're not used to thinking long term in the United States, and we're certainly not thinking long term most of the time in Africa. So it's ushering in a whole new way of doing business, a whole new kind of light on, the, on this region that's been kind of shrouded. And uh, I think it's going to be a positive thing, but we have to be careful. That's John Flynn a USAID official working in Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo, if he's right about our human aversion to long-term thinking and climate is all long-term, maybe, maybe nothing happens until climate becomes crisis. 
This is a special report on Red and the Congo Basin from Alex Chadwick. Our story on how climate change policy could work in the world's second largest tropical forest continues in a minute. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If UN climate policy is going to cut carbon emissions by cutting deforestation, it's going to have to work in the huge carbon-rich forests of Central Africa and the Congo Basin. We continue now with our report from Alex Chadwick, who went to Kinshasa, the capital of the largest country there, the Democratic Republic of Congo. It is hard remaining positive in Kinshasa. A foreign advisor to the government told this story. Someone in the Ministry of Environment wanted to hold a mini-conference with other ministries. He wrote a letter of invitation and got it approved. But he couldn't send it out because there was no paper for the printer. When another foreigner finally produced a ream, the letters still couldn't be delivered because there was no gas for the car. He couldn't just mail it, of course. Congo doesn't have a functioning postal service. Democratic Republic of Congo has enormous needs and ambitions to develop a stable and more prosperous economy. That American voice belongs to an official representative of the Democratic Republic of Congo. He's a deeply experienced advisor to World Wildlife Fund International and with many years in Africa. And Ken Creighton is an actual delegate, one of several not the leader he is quick to note, still a delegate to the U.N. climate talks for DR Congo. Is there a number that you could put on the carbon value of the forests of Democratic Republic of Congo? Well, it's basically immense. It's calculated in terms of, you know, literally hundreds of billions of tons of carbon you know, probably were it all to disappear in a short period, it, it represents decades worth of global emissions from all other sources. Consider those numbers just for a minute. Now, think about the carbon calculations that policymakers apply when looking at Congo. Billions of tons of carbon, dangerous for the atmosphere. So, pay Congo Basin countries to maintain their forest, but pay them what? There's a lot of money in red. Even though we don't know exactly what the market will be when and if the details get settled. Okay, back to Ken Creighton. Well, on a global level, in order to actually begin concrete actions and compensation for reducing emissions will require somewhere in the range between 15 and 25 billion dollars between now and 2015. What people know about DR Congo is there's a war going on. Uh, DR Congo can't control its own physical limits of its own country. It has a reputation for enormous uh, corruption, and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is saying, we need to send these people a lot of money, a lot of money. 
Well, I think the basis for that is we cannot achieve our goals in terms of reducing the risk of catastrophic climate change unless we can find a solution to this second largest block of tropical forest on the planet. A forest advisor in Kinshasa shows me a satellite map of a forest area that is the size of South Carolina. It includes the last refuge of what is thought to be humankind's nearest evolutionary ape, the bonobo chimpanzee. The image is all dark green with tree canopy, and there are rivers and a few tiny clearings. It looks like total wilderness, but three-quarters of a million people live there, the advisor says. And this is the most important thing that I learn in the Congo Basin. The vast forests, the ones conservationists would sanctify and climate scientists seal off, are home to many, many people, millions of them. The Baka have been in the Congo Basin forever, living carbon neutral and with abundant wildlife. This interview is from a small Baka community in Cameroon, but Baka ignore most political boundaries. This man, Minyango Daniel, has been leader of this group for 40 years. We know some outsiders want to save the forest, he says. The forest is why we live here. It's everything. Is the weather changing? Does the conditions, do the weather conditions change? Is the rain changing? Minyango Daniel says many things have changed. Now he says we have to go a very long way to hunt. I used to know when to sow my garden to avoid the heavy rains, Minyango Daniel explains. Now those rains come in planting season. The fate of the forest turns out to be less about climate and carbon and more about the people who live there, who've always lived there, and will go on living there. In Congo, they're eating away at the forest very slowly. With help, they can learn to farm more sustainably. But they are not going away, and any plan to reduce forest emissions that does not include them will fail. There's a large green space in the downtown part of Kinshasa, the city botanical garden. It's where we meet the DRC Minister for Environment, Jose Ndundu. Du fait que depuis des siècles, la population congolaise a préservé la forêt. For many centuries, the Congolese people have been protecting the forests. The process of redistributing the money will be done at the appropriate time. We are involved in the very important negotiations. We are working with other countries to reach an agreement and to see how we can benefit from this. I spoke to a man today who represents civil society, groups across the country, conservation groups. He said he had a question for you. Will the money go to the treasury or will it go to the communities? Je vais vous parler très franchement. Il ne faut pas que les pays développés. I'll be very frank with you. 
It's not good that developed countries, especially Western countries, should say there is bad governance here and use that as an excuse not to fund red. You are the ones who made the pollution from factories, airline traffic and energy production. We don't ask you how you use the money you got from pollution activities. It is not fair for you to ask us, how are you going to use this money from red? We should concentrate on how we can fix this problem together. Many people don't like red because they're afraid the West will just pay you for carbon credits and go on polluting. No, 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 no. La, la discussion est globale. La discussion ne peut pas être. No, 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 no. I don't share your opinion. We are all in the same boat. We have to limit temperature rise to a maximum of two degrees change. The ideal goal will be to cap greenhouse gas emissions at 350 parts per million on a global scale. We must agree on these conditions because we are all in the same boat. Studies show that poor countries will be most affected. So regarding the responsibility of the DRC, we know very well what we have to do. Kong is among the richest countries in the world, natural resources and biodiversity. We have half the water reserve in Africa and half the forest in Africa and many other resources. We know what we have, and we are not going to miss this opportunity to benefit from that. And we are sure that Congo is going to play an important role. Congo cannot miss this historic chance to benefit from that richness. Africa as a whole would benefit as well. Jose Ndundu, the Minister of the Environment for the Democratic Republic of Congo, speaking with us at a park in downtown Kinshasa. Wildlife conservationist and carbon investor Mike Korczynski is still waiting to hear about his $10 million red bid for the Angola Mintum Forest in Cameroon. He had thought he would win that bid, he's less sure now, but more confident that Angola Mintum will become a red forest with protections for the carbon and the wildlife and the people who live there. Those forests are now an advantage that those people that live with wildlife and live in these remote areas have over the rest of us because they've, they still have forest. And that forest is now of, of value in what the emerging carbon marketplace. Twelve months ago, that was an idea that was being hypothesized that these forests would have value. And today, it looks like a runaway train, in a sense, in that now all the climate conversations involve this idea of forests or uh, avoided deforestation as a mechanism for reducing carbon emissions into the atmosphere. An international conservation expert agrees. Red, he told us, isn't ecotourism. This is real money. This is going to make a difference. John Flynn of the Central African Environment Program is more skeptical of Red's potential. But he sounds remarkably confident about prospects for Kinshasa. Corrupt, he says, maddening, and the best place to see what is going to happen in Central Africa. It's a desperately poor country, and this whole region is desperately poor for so many reasons. It's rich in resources, but the people are among the poorest in the world. The DRC has uh, among the greatest uh, malnourishment rate of anywhere in the world. So, uh, you know, it's going to be tempting when people uh, uh, put those kind of numbers around. But 
the one thing I can say about the region is that they're used to people, flim, you know, kind of coming in and uh, making big promises, and they've been disappointed for a hundred years. And uh, they're skeptical and they're cynical about these outsiders. And so I think uh, that might serve them well, actually, at some level. About 100 years ago, in the dense Congo forest of southeast Cameroon, a German military patrol marched away from a clearing that would become the village of Anguilla. The soldiers left gifts with a family that had helped them, a diary and a German flag, and they asked that family to wave. Over the years, the diary has gone missing. The meaning behind the flag was difficult for the family to discern, but the value of woven material was not. They cut it up for loincloths. The forest remains, and the descendants of Nguyla's founders and His Majesty Chief Impono Pierre, who told us this story. C'est pour vous. Qu'attendez-vous donc pour investir de façon à ce que la forêt soit conservée et qu'on se développe le plus rapidement possible? We sit in the shade of a porch outside his small, neat, mud-brick home at the southern end of the village. We are waiting, he says. He's an older man who remains tall and lean. He wears a military-style jacket of pressed khaki linen. He holds a totem of office in his lap, a long, dried grass whisk. Si le climat a changé ici, c'est qu'il a changé plus gravement là-bas. You ask about climate and carbon and the value of trees, he says. Everyone knows about the value of trees. We know that the forest can clean the atmosphere. We know this already. So, what are you waiting for? Minutes pass away in the midday heat. His level gaze suggests not impatience so much as a long weariness. Si un exploitant arrive ici aujourd'hui, on va l'embrasser parce que vous l'embinez. We are waiting, says Chief Impono Pierre, and behind him, the last structures of the village of Anguilla give way to the great carbon-rich forest of the Congo Basin. Alex Chadwick, thanks to you and Christopher Johnson for that report. Uh, but before you go, tell me, where exactly do things stand now? And how much longer is that village chief going to have to wait? Boy, that is the question. You know, Steve, these red policies depend on people agreeing to play by the rules, regulated market rules to value carbon, how to count it, etc. The big Copenhagen climate summit was supposed to settle all this. It didn't. There's another uh, climate summit later this year in Mexico. But not long ago, France and Norway convened a smaller summit. They issued invitations. It was limited. Not everyone got to go. This was a forest basins conference, the people with lots of rainforest, the people who really matter. So now there is a, a kind of a leadership group coming out of that, France, Norway, Brazil, Papua New Guinea, Australia, and 
the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, this might help that village chief eventually. All these countries are charged with verifying and building on the financial pledges that did come out of Copenhagen. Keep pushing for preparation for full implementation of RED. You know, Steve, there are lots of models for cooperative global initiatives, but when was the last one that featured the Democratic Republic of Congo in a prominent role? So what about that full implementation of RED? Because that really is what the chief and poor communities throughout the tropical belt are looking for, right? Exactly. That's the only alternative to uh, logging their forests. And the answer to the questions, when, how, how much... All these answers actually lie in Washington, D.C., Steve, because the U.S. Senate has not acted on climate legislation, the the legislation passed last year by the House. And until the Senate does act, until the U.S. has a climate policy, the world is not going to really settle on a global policy. But if the Senate does pass a climate bill this year, if the U.S. comes into cap-and-trade, watch for this market to explode and money to start showing up lots of places. Our gross carbon emissions are enormous. We'll be the biggest player in the game. That's going to make a difference in bustling places like Kinshasa and probably even in the small forest village of Nguela in eastern Cameroon. You've been listening to a special report of Living on Earth, Red in the Congo Basin. And thanks to you, Alex Chadwick, for bringing us that story. Steve, you're welcome. A pleasure to be here. And thanks also to your producer, Christopher Johnson, and mix engineer, Sven Holcomb. Thanks also to Fan Louis Shea in Cameroon and in Kinshasa, Rona Mlangoy, David Weiner, and Cynthia Moses of the International Conservation and Education Fund. We leave you this week in the forest at dawn. In the Congo Basin, at a small glade, there's an opening in the forest. Here, amongst the tall trees, ropey lianas and undergrowth, the Baca pygmy people have made a small shrine. To see photos of the shrine and more, go to our website, loe.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreese Kandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Emily Guerin and Bridget McDonald. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, 
integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.